Um, up first is my favourite ever bisexual pre-apocalyptic Indian subcontinental romance novel. <laughs> um, in fact, it may be the only bisexual pre-apocalyptic Indian romance novel that I know, um, but it's the only one you'll ever need. It's the third in Manil Suri's trilogy based on Hindu gods. Uh, the story, I mean, I, when it was described to me by somebody, I was like, really? Really? That's how? And there's pomegranates? Um, but um, it more than works. Amidst the chaos of religious violence and impending nuclear holocausts, two men and one woman try to find each other and forbidden love and pomegranates. Please welcome Professor Manol Suri. Great to be here. And uh, I'm going to actually just read out a few different little sections and then uh, continue, we'll, we'll, we'll continue from there. So I'm actually going to start right at the beginning because you mentioned pomegranate. So here is the pomegranate, and it's on the cover too, but here it is. Four days before the bomb that is supposed to obliterate Bombay and kill us all, I stand in the ruins of Crawford Market, haggling with the lone remaining fruit seller over the price of the pomegranate in my hand. Is 500 rupees not an outrageous price already? Why won't you sell it to me for 500? Look at what's happening around you, Mamesaib. Do you think the orchards are overflowing with pomegranates? Do you think the lorries are driving into Mumbai every day and filling the markets with fruit? I'm only asking for 1,000 because it's you, Mamesaib. But even three times that won't be too much for this last piece, which really was the best one in the pile to begin with. I look at the sign for Crawford Market behind me still smoldering from last night's air raid, or has it simply been another terrorist bomb? All around are shops gutted in the fire. Remains of baskets lie scattered on the ground, pieces of fruit too charred for the scavengers to steal rest at my feet. I notice the tangerine that still has its characteristic knob at the top. It has been roasted to a black, perfectly whole crisp. The fruit wala has a point. Supply and demand, he has me where he wants. This much I know, I must have the pomegranate before I begin my quest. Some instinct deep inside insists it's my best shot. But what's tied into the folds of the silk dupatta around my neck is a few hundred less than the fruit while I wants. But yeah, listen, I try once more. They're dropping the atom bomb this week. Atom bomb, you understand, not some firecracker that's demolished the market around you. On Bombay, Mumbai, whatever you call it, the city's going to be finished. What would you do even if you did manage to squeeze out the extra money from someone? Take it to heaven with you? And what if nobody else came to your store? Most of the city has fled, you know. Is this what you want to happen to your fruit? I nudge the tangerine with my foot, and it crumbles into ash. But the fruit wala is adamant. He won't settle for less. It's all up to Devi Ma's grace, he says. She's the city's patron goddess, after all. Now that she's appeared in our midst, perhaps she'll save us. Who knows? But even if she doesn't, even if she only lets me hold the money for 10 minutes, at least I'll have it for that much time. At least I'll die with an offering for her in my hand. Suddenly the futility of what I'm trying to do overwhelms me. How ridiculous to put such hopes in a pomegranate. I look at the smoke billowing out of the buildings in the distance and smell the soot that hangs everywhere. Ever since I started my vigil for Karun 18 days ago, I've kept close to my building complex sheltered from the mayhem trying not to obsess over where he might be now, why he left. 
with the internet dying out, together with phones, radio and television, even electricity, my only news about the outside has been through tidbits from our lone remaining watchmen. Somewhere towards Metro, a gun fires three times. Looters probably executed by the police. Or perhaps by vigilantes, the police force, according to our watchmen, having also fled. I wonder what would happen if I bolted, wrapped the pomegranate in my dupatta and leapt over the rubble that used to be the entrance. Would the fruit waller run after me? Would the vigilantes fire at me as well? Surely their code of conduct must frown upon the gunning down of women. Perhaps the fruit waller sees the calculation on my face because he takes the pomegranate from my hand. He eyes me carefully and I see him appraising the Mongol Sutra I wear. Has it been two years already since our marriage when Karun tied it around my neck? I run the black beads of the necklace through my fingers. I feel the gold pendant. What difference does it make if I die with or without it? At least this way I will feel I have a chance. I take off the Mangal Sutra and hand it to the fruit wala. He drops the red and heavy orb that is to give me Karun back into my palm. So that's uh, Sarita, and she's searching for her husband Karun, who has left, you know, it's 18 days since he's disappeared. And the city has been sort of divided into Muslim and Hindu sections, and she has to find him. Uh, and there's, uh, you know, there's the pomegranate, and then there's one other ingredient that I thought I'd um, share with you, just read you a short extract, and then I'll tell you about the third character. So this ingredient is the Super Devi. Devi is the mother goddess, and this is what Super Devi is. Super Devi released that summer, deluging even non-movie people like us with its hype. The most expensive Indian film ever made, thanks to the backing of both Hollywood and the Indian mafia. Lata Mangeshkar teams up for her techno comeback with Lady Gaga, who my sister Uma said was a famous pop star. They titled you at Rockets to the Top of Charts Worldwide. And up in the sky, a bird, a jet, knows Super Devi herself, zooming overhead behind a prop plane as we sat and tried to ignore her on the beach at Chopati. Supposedly, the script borrowed extensively from Slumdog Millionaire and Superman, films which neither of us had seen, in telling the story of a young girl from the Mumbai slums with the power to assume different avatars of Devi to fight crime. Uma kept herding us to the McDonald's, which was giving away all nine incarnations from the movie as collectible action figures. Throughout India and parts of New England and New, of England and New Jersey, free with food purchases, vegetarian only so as not to upset Hindu sentiments. She collected eight of the figures, turning off the light at home to show us how they glowed in the dark, just like Super Devi. Despite foisting dozens of Makalu tikki sandwiches on us, however, she never managed to acquire the elusive Kali incarnation, doting her AK-47 from the final battle scene. <laughs> the movie managed to surpass even the most optimistic projections. I read breathless reports in magazines of kids dragging their families to see three and four and even ten times of the urban youth of India finding spiritual enlightenment in Super Devi's incarnation as call center worker to fight telefraud. <laughs> a ZTV program documented how Super Devi wielded its greatest power over rural India, whose citizens experienced it not as movie, but as religious odyssey. The reporter followed scores of villagers making pilgrimages from miles around to get the Super Devi's blessing at a small theater in Ambala where both fire exits had been converted into Devi shrines for patrons to leave flowers, coconuts, and monetary offerings. 
Perhaps the most definitive evidence of the film's popularity appeared in the calendar art sold on city streets. All the goddesses, from Lakshmi to Saraswati to Parvati, were a striking resemblance to Superdevi's child heroine, Baby Rinki. So that's the Superdevi. And um, there's also some other ingredients, but I'll jump to um, jazz. And he is, he is the, uh, the, the third part, since, you, you know, since it's, it has to be a triangle. It has to be this bisexual um, fantasy or pre-apocalyptic, whatever you called it, uh, which I love. Which I love. No, but you're the one who called it. I also like the, uh, the word madcap filth in your uh, Twitter uh, tweet that you did. So, so here's, here's some madcap filth. <laughs> So this is Jazz, and uh, he has grown up uh, around the world. His parents are Islamic scholars, and they've pulled him from country to country. And you know he's been having all these emotional problems, and they haven't really seen. So on his 14th birthday, he takes a paperclip and pierces his tongue, uh, and then blows out blood on his birthday cake. So this is what happens after that. That finally got their attention. <laughs> their solution was to move once more to Mother India this time, which would unscramble my identity, fill my heart with pride in who I was, where I came from. That's how the young and still impressionable Jazz found himself sitting in the green-walled annex to the Baikula Mosque in Bombay, fitted with a skull cap and equipped with a Quran. Each evening, as the adults prayed upstairs, I stared at the paint peeling off the benches, trying to tune out the hadiths being explained by the imam. Could I escape again by piercing some other body part? Fortunately, my cousin Rahim, who attended the same class, had alternative plans for my edification. My parents, ever pressed for time, arranged for me to spend the evenings at his home afterwards. At 16, Rahim not only exceeded me in age, but also in girth. I experienced his weight firsthand each time he sat on me at the end of our wrestling bouts. He insisted we strip down to our underwear like sumo wrestlers. He swept, marked my body, smelling of whatever spice lingered most dominantly from lunch. Rahim's mother had died a decade ago, and his father worked late, so we didn't have to worry about anyone supervising us. Soon we were undressing completely and wrestling in the buff. I'm not sure if my technique improved or if Rahim simply let me, but I started ending up on top more often than not. <laughs> my thighs straddling his hips, my seat pressed into his crotch. Even though I left his hands free, he never pushed me off. One evening I had the bright idea of slapping him in the face with my penis as we horsed around. <laughs> He looked at me strangely, then leaned forward and took me in his mouth. For an instant, I hung there, suspended over him in alarm. Then I felt someone older, more experienced take over. This person seemed conversant with the geography of Rahim's mouth, seemed to know just how fast and how deep to thrust and how much to pull out. I found my neck arcing back, my hands grabbing Rahim's head as he made soft grunting sounds. Perhaps the person was not as experienced as I thought, before I could stop myself, I had transacted my first orgasm with my cousin's mouth. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, survivors of the coming October 19th Holocaust or future alien voyagers, this is where my journey takes its most dramatic turn. The before and after, the BC and the CE, the divine revelation that swept away all my baggage from the past. 
Suddenly I didn't feel hopeless. Suddenly I found myself in control. Suddenly the answers to all my questions popped and burst like fireworks. My identity flashed on. My confidence powered up. The path to my fulfillment in life blazed in the sun. Over the next few weeks, Rahim and I poked and probed and plumbed. We matched appendages to orifices in every combination that sprang to our fevered minds. Dispensing with the wrestling, we dove directly each evening into racking up the notches on the bedpost, not to mention the sofa, the dining table, the kitchen stool, <laughs> even the telephone stand before it broke. <laughs> the arduousness of some of our experiments eased appreciably when we discovered the lubrication properties of pantry ingredients. <laughs> Jam was too sticky. <laughs> Butter worked better than mayonnaise. But nothing rivaled the glissants of pure ghee. <laughs> My parents couldn't stop beaming. How eagerly I trotted off to class every evening. How well their mosque experiment seemed to be working. They even published a paper on this. Therapeutic self-affirmative effects of religious instruction on troubled youth. <laughs> the fact that I'd begun paying attention to my physique was an added bonus. Healthy mind, healthy body. Just like the good book says, my father remarked, each morning he saw me performing calisthenics. In reality, roles had begun to emerge in my after-curricular activity Clearly, I was the boinker, Rahim the eternal boinky. <laughs> if I wanted to fit my emerging self-image, it behooved me to start pumping up. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. So when I said professor, that's so not what you thought, was it? <laughs> um, I, I absolutely love jazz. I love yeah. his heroic filthiness um, and the fact that there's a kind of, you know, the world is literally about to end, and we'll talk about that in a minute, and all he can think about um, is, is where he's going to have sex, but also finding this man, um, Karun, who is Sarita's husband. That's so right. um, before we explain that, that threesome, which be does actually become a threesome, um, tell us how it is that they've got to the, the, the state where October the 19th is, is potential apocalypse. So it's actually super Devi, you know, Bollywood that's going to be the cause of the end of the world. I mean, you can blame it on Bollywood. This movie <laughs> has uh, been a big hit internationally, but it's also been used by right-wing politicians to sort of spread this message that the super Devi wants to uh, rid the country of all minorities. And this has led to a cascade of events. Um, China has stepped in, Pakistan has attacked India, and, you know, there's this question of this nuclear threat in four days. And that's what's caused the city to separate, and uh, that's what uh, these characters have to negotiate. It's, they're completely desperate. You know, they're going to search for Karun because things might end in four days. And they're both in love with him. They're both in love with him, and um, uh, Sarita has been married for a few years, and um, you know, things haven't gone quite as expected. Uh, pomegranates have played a role in that. That's true. Um, and and, Kar and uh, Jazz has actually... Um, had a relationship with with Karun. He's always been, you know, the the shikari, the hunter, and he's spent his life sort of, you know, expressing his sexuality. And then when Sorry, he when he says expressing his sexuality, he means having sex in parks in Mumbai. Yes, yes, yes. Which, what research did you do for that role? Uh, 
<laughs> I write books. <laughs> Um, yeah, so I mean, there's uh, there's lots of sex in the book, mostly jazz, but also Sarita a little bit, uh, uh, and and uh, jazz is uh, you know when he meets Karun, he doesn't realize he's never really been in love before, mm. and he doesn't even realize that, and before it's uh, before he can realize that or sort of grasp it, it's too late. I mean, I, it's it's very interesting because I mean, Karun is not the character that you would think people would be the most in love with. He's kind of unlikely in a way, isn't he? He's a sort of physicist and, that, and he's kind of a bit gimpy almost. But what's, what's wrong with that? Physicist, no, mathematician. No, we'll we'll get on to the professor of mathematics <laughs> okay, in a okay. second. <laughs> That's perfect. That's entirely <laughs> lovable. No, but, but he's but not studly in that sense. Yeah, he's not studly. Uh, but the thing with him is, the thing with him is that um, he's sort of unattainable. Right. And he's sort of, you know, very closed. And he gives little glimpses of himself and makes you feel special, like he'll smile only for you and he'll be very shy otherwise. And so people really find themselves sort of um, getting into that. And he's just revealing himself little by little. And it's that unattainability that makes him so attractive. Particularly to jazz. Yes, yeah. and to Sarita too, because yeah. she's, she's kind of a little gawky herself. And so she feels, you know, this intense bond with him. Well, she, wasn't, she was kind of older to get married, wasn't she? So she was very... Yeah, and her sister had gotten married, her younger sister. And so, yeah, she, when, when she finds uh, sort of um, kindred soul, you know, she's a statistician, he's a physicist. Notice I didn't uh, make, a, make any of the characters mathematicians. Because I thought that would be going too far. <laughs> you know, a statistician is still safe, I think. Yeah, just, just okay. next door. Yeah, yeah, right. um, so w one of the things I found really remarkable about the book was that uh, at, the out uh, at the outset you sort of think, well, this is ridiculous, and of course it could never happen. But the, farther, the, the more I read, the more I thought, well, actually, I, I can see how this series of misunderstandings and bits of propaganda um, would happen because there are underlying kind of tectonic issues in that society, which, which this could play to very well. And it reminded me a lot of Gary Steengart's super sad true yes, love story, yes, which is that. very, right. you know, not similar in that way. And sure. that you think, oh, America could never be invaded by China. And then you think, right. well, actually, it could. So, I mean, you know, it, it, it's, it's near future, isn't it, in a way? It's the near future, which sort of is different from uh, Gary's story, because that's the far future. And that's, if you think about it, most books about He's not the that future, far. His is like 20 years. But, but. but it's still uh, far enough that you can set up things that have happened and change the rules in some sense. And, you know, there's the usual science fiction scenario where um, cockroaches are ruling the earth or whatever. Uh, but here, this could be tomorrow. And one of the problems that I had since I was writing it for a long time was that... How when long I were you writing it for? Uh, Your editor is... 12 years. years. Yeah, you can say 12, 12 years. years. Yeah, but it was, it was... I was writing another book at the same time. But I started this in... That first scene that you read out, that, uh, that you heard, was actually uh, September 2000. It was actually before 9-11. So, you know, once 9-11 happened, you had to kind of do a retake. And, uh, and then throughout the writing of the book, there have been incidents that I've had to really worry about, okay, how to make that plausible, how to put that in. Like the last thing that happened was the Arab Spring, just when I was almost finishing this book. And I was, that was so <laughs> inconsiderate of them, you know? I had to go back and put it in and re-edit things. Uh, I mean, really. It's, it's All that personal freedom and you on a deadline. What a nightmare. Yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> Um, but, but, you know, so, so you, you grew, you're Hindu, you grew up a, in an apartment block where everybody else, everybody else was Muslim. So that's an early experience for you of, of being very different, right? 
Yeah, it was interesting because it was a big, um, it was a large flat, and we shared this with three other families, and those three families were Muslim and we were Hindu, and we had a common bathroom and, uh, and you know, like a common kitchen. And so there were a lot of fights. They weren't usually about religion or anything, uh, but, but that gave me this idea of being in the minority, being in the majority, you know, glo uh, nationally, Hindus are 75%, 80%, and here it was just the uh, reverse. So that was interesting. Um, and th so those tensions that, that are there in the book, I mean, I, I, you know, I, I was reading it and thinking, is that, is that how it would play out? I mean, it's almost, you know, there are, there are kind of rival gangs and they're patrolling the streets and different areas kind of become Muslim and different areas become, become Hindu. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's sort of Pakistan is kind of colonizing India in a, a strange way. Yeah, and that's, that's kind of the, you know, the, I mean, there's several, um, there's several plot uh, kind of things that I need to create this scenario. And uh, at some point, I, I had to, I, there was something really, I, I mean, I gave up on this book many times uh, because I figured, you know, these plot strands just can't be put together. And then at some point, I realized that I was, the problem was I was just thinking too much about the present, uh, you know, just very literally, okay, this couldn't happen, that couldn't happen, you can't have pomegranates doing this, you can't have elephants, there's an elephant in the book too, because every good Indian novel has to have an elephant, that was, <laughs> I was remiss for the first two. Um, but, but then I realized that, okay, you just need to go with this story, just, just you know, make it whatever it's going to be, and uh, there's a weird kind of, um, there's a weird kind of sensibility towards the elephant and the pomegranate and so on, it's almost like, People expect these elements in Indian fiction or foreign fiction, and I'm sort of taking these exotic elements and sort of subverting those expectations by throwing them back and saying, okay, you want elephants? I'll give you elephants. Yeah. Here, here, have two of them. Yeah, and it's de I mean, it's definitely subversive. Um, it definitely is that. Um, and so let's talk about Super David, because you had a, a personal connection to, to Bollywood in that sense growing up, didn't you? Yeah, my father was a uh, assistant to uh, music directors, and so um, one of the things that I had was, uh, you know, this direct access. We used to go in and see previews of movies. Uh, Bollywood, of course, is something that growing up in the 60s, 70s, uh, it was the common thread that really united all of society, and it still does, I think. Uh, but this personal thing was very nice. I still remember this movie called Caravan, which I saw, I don't know, six times as a kid. And there was this wonderful dance by Helen, who was this woman who came into all these Bollywood movies, did her dance, and vanished. And I actually had the pleasure of reprising her dance in the middle of Brooklyn. <laughs> so this was, this was great fun. It was a literary uh, event. And you were only allowed to read if you did something really embarrassing. And so I had just come back from India, and I you know, put on all these clothes and everything. And I'd been practicing for months, and my partner was horrified. And, uh, and even towards the end, he was saying, don't do it, don't do it. Maybe it'll rain. Maybe I'll. And then I went and did it, and it was a complete striptease and everything. I was still, I was still wearing my bra, though. So, um, but, but that was very liberating. Uh, I will know, say it's on YouTube, and I have seen it. Yeah, right, right. It is on YouTube. Just, just, just really I, good. Oh, thank you, thank you. I, I mean, that's what the president of my university said when I showed it to him. So let's, let's talk about your university, because you're a professor of mathematics, which is obviously, math is very scary for a lot of the people here, um, including me. So how, how, how many how, people? Let's just see a show of hands. Who's scared of math? Who's scared I of math? Okay, yeah, that's a lot. Yeah, a lot of people, okay. that's a lot. Okay. 
Yeah, see, um, and so so how how is it that, that, that you know you you have you know this is your, your your third novel and you are a professor of mathematics. Mm -hmm. do, I mean, do they really both have equal appeal in that you know bisexual way, or is it that the, mm. that that that, that, that you, you know you became maths first and then English second, or how does it work? I need a third per, third subject, you know, the threesome kind yes, of thing. Yes. Yeah. Well, the dancing, I guess. Yeah. That's <laughs> um, but 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 the uh, I mean, I started as a mathematician, and uh, the writing was just a hobby. I didn't want to end up like everyone else in my department and just do maths. Um, and then uh, when the book came out, it was it was I, I used to just do it in secret, you know, go to these clubs, the writing clubs in Washington. I was living in Baltimore. I didn't want anyone to know. So since I wanted to get tenure. Uh, You're like a closet writer in the yeah, closet department. writer. <laughs> yeah, closet yeah. um, and, and there were all these awful episodes where I would be typing these, you know, like filth-laden scenes, I guess, uh, on my computer at work since I didn't have one at home. And then I would send it to the printer, and once I remember, it actually came up in the secretary's printer in this, in this locked office, and I was kind of shaking at the bars. <laughs> it was the weekend, and I said, oh, my God, how am I going to get this out? So anyway, uh, after the book came out, there were two professors in my department who came and told me, came out as actors to me. So, <laughs> so you know, there are people doing all sorts of things. So, so I think what's happened since then is that I've really realized uh, that I need both. And I think one plays off on the other. And it's great to interact with, uh, with kids uh, and, you know, be able to teach students and actually talk to human beings instead of sitting in my office and writing my 64 words a day that make it to a printed oh page. It's actually 64.6. I, I did a calculation. It. That was for the Age of Shiva, the previous book. With this one, it's now 69.3. Words, so words a day. Words a day that actually make it to the printed page. Oh my god. So, so, so yeah, so, so that's, that's, that's why I'm still doing the mathematics. Like, thank you. Thank truly you. loving you for that. That's, okay. that, is, that, is, that is harsh. <laughs> Polly's saying in the front row, she's like, I thought I was slow. <laughs> Sylvia. So the question is really quite big, and it's basically, is God in the number pi? Well, you should be glad it's the last hour in this room. <laughs> well, uh, just, this, was, this was a very interesting class that um, I taught with an English professor, actually, about a year ago, where it's the humanities seminar. There are all these unsuspecting humanities scholars who have to take this class, and it changes every semester, and this semester they came in like you people, hating mathematics, and were told that the topic was mathematics and what it means to be human. And we looked at the interaction of the humanities and mathematics. We didn't actually teach them mathematics, but the idea was to provoke discussion. And so Pi was, was a great movie to talk about because it actually takes little bit of math, bits of mathematics and then actually uh, creates the story out of it. And uh, you can actually you know, use that as a tangent for all sorts of things. So we had some nice discussions, including that question. Uh, but then we had to get to a different point because they started, you know, drilling holes in their heads and so on, like, like the mathematician does in the movie, if any of you, uh, of you have seen <laughs> that. There'll be no trepanning in this room. Right. Um, sorry, was, yes, Palash. Do I need a mic? Or no, you can just shout. You have a loud voice. Well, Professor, 
Oh, please don't call me professor. I, I'm not a professor here, so, you know. I think it's quite hot, professor. Oh. Well, uh, Well, don't ask it then. Another question. <laughs> right. uh, would you have your hand up at the back? No, you didn't. You didn't? Okay, okay. Okay, so I wanted to ask you because this is, this is, <laughs> this is a third book in a trilogy. Right. Um, and the you know, trilogies have that... Okay, he said it yeah. himself. Yeah. <laughs> and I do love him. He's very... You're mean. I know. <laughs> Jessica. Yes, what was oh, what, how that, it took you 12 years? When did yeah, you realize it was finished? This is, this is an interesting question. In 2009, I said, okay, I need to use all my mathematical techniques, make a little diagram of all the plot possibilities. That sounds like, so much like people wasting their time with post-it notes, doesn't it? Right. <laughs> well, well, this was like a decision tree that you might have seen for chess games, like white moves, these three possibilities. Then for each of these, there are three possibilities for black and so on. Jazz does this, Sarifa does that. And look at all of these. And I kept going through these branches and coming up against a dead end. And you know, something, things were just too uh, trite or unbelievable or whatever. And at some point, I convinced myself that I had mathematically proven that this book could not be completed. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so I gave it up. You know, my duty was done. Um, but then, unfortunately, my agent was not a mathematician. She could not appreciate. <laughs> she, she did not appreciate my proof. So she said, you go back to that. <laughs> and that's, that's when, you know, you were asking about the trilogy. That's when I realized that these three characters, Karun Jazz and Sarita, uh, sort of form a trinity just like the three main uh, gods in Hinduism, mm. uh, which are Shiva, Vishnu, and Devi. And once I saw that metaphor, I realized that this book really had this depth in it, that these strands had to come together. And that actually also gave me the freedom to sort of jump, jump the rails and just go where the story led me to. That seems like a brilliant place to leave it. Thank you so much, Manon. Thank you so much.